This evening's talk is about the seamless circle of generosity. Some years ago, when I was living uh, as the resident teacher at the Insight Meditation Society, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which was not far from the Insight Meditation Society, to pay a visit to my friend, the Venerable Mahagosananda. I'm sure that some of you know of him. His name translates as Maha, or Great, and Gosananda, Sound of Bliss. And Maha, as he was very fondly called, was from Cambodia and uh, is considered the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. And he's best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and the villages and the refugee camps during and then just after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago at approximately the age of 94. And he'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt to me like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. And he was so simple, so unpretentious, so rare. A being with a really truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of uh, teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. And we didn't really know each other very well at that point, and uh, we hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I didn't really know if he would remember me. Being such an old man, there were things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time we had met, and I, I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, I remember your nose. <laughs> and I kind of burst out laughing when he said that. And I said, well, it must be quite a nose. And he very directly and he very sweetly responded, it's a good nose. During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at IMS, uh, not long after that Colorado retreat that I taught with the Venerable Gosananda, I visited Venerable Gosananda at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who used to call me Mum. And at one point I asked him, why do you call me Mum? When he was so much older than me, I didn't understand why he called me mom. And he responded by saying, we have all been each other's mothers at some point. 
and so your mom. So that day when I went to visit him at the Peace Pagoda during the three-month retreat that I was teaching, mom and grandfather sat together and drank some tea. We laughed a bit. We talked a little bit about history of his life. We talked about the three-month retreat that I was co-teaching with other teachers and how everybody was so very diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable's very much favorite, most favorite topic. Being with Venerable Gosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and enlightened the heart and the mind. A gift that he so selflessly offered through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift he offered in just simply being. And I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and then afterwards. My heart always felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then on outward. An experience that would always continue on beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, uh, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived at the Cambodian uh, Peace Pagoda with Maha were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and uh, big tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar uh, for me to take back to the three-month yogis. They said that they wanted to offer gifts of support because they were, they were so... Uh, happy and delighted that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred 20, over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're all sitting here together this evening. So moving from a fairly recent story regarding the Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays a number of paramis, and in particular generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular telling is adapted from uh, the tale as told by the Buddhist storyteller Rafe Martin. It said that Many Mahakalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India. And he was to offer a, an evening of public talks revealing the Dharma. The villagers were really very excited and 
and felt very deeply honored. And so to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out uh, the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through their village and then cover it with a very a piece of very fine cloth. In the forest, just outside of this village of Amaravati, lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, and physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness and kindness, and much vigor and virtue. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later lifetime was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before, uh, leaving, uh, leaving young Sumedha seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that this young man, Sumedha, thought, my family has amassed much wealth. Yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more, he thought. One day I too will die. As, there's no, as there is a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I remain idle? No, he thought. I will leave this sheltered life and become an ascetic and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and he gave all of his money to the poor and he entered into the forest life of a hermit, eating wild fruit and wearing clothes made of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether walking or standing or sitting or lying down. Within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the nature of things, and he bore a very bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many, many days, blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day that uh, of Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village of Amravati, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and the, all, the, all of the activity in the village. It's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know? The Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village. While Sumedha's heart just leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is comprehending is it to meet such a realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and he offered to help the workman with the road and he picked a particularly swampy patch uh, uh, to a very low ground to fill. And he worked with his heart and his mind 
just filled with light and joy and repeating over and over and over again to himself, a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish the task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed into the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha Dipankara and a great soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here is one who has attained all wisdom. Here is one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft, wet ground, and then he lay down upon it. And he loosened and spread out his very long, matted hair. And he made a passage of himself for the Buddha to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all of the difficulties and all of the danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot. And he looked down at Sumedha and he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. In many Mahakalpas and many world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, village people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men and children, the Buddha Dipankara said, in many Mahakalpas, and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs. Old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he will receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. And then with renewed energy and strength, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he'll attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. And the next moment, the hermit Sumedha then put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then the Buddha Dipankara continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. 
the Bodhisattva Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength and purpose. And it's said that again he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. I think most of us usually think of generosity as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving. A process which very clearly helps to purify and to transform the contraction of separateness that's engendered by self-centeredness. The development and the deepening of the heart of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and the transformation of greed, clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and the deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and the transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive this seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and so deeply practiced and cultivated and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many, many years ago. And my four-and-a-half-year-old son walks over to my work area with a great big bunch of uh, dandelions, uh, bright yellow dandelions, and a big smile on his face, and he thrusts the bunch of yellow dandelions at me, gave them to me. And I received them with delight and with great heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China during my 46th birthday. And the friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with uh, a Chinese family who were uh, good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired uh, my favorite bracelet, which I was wearing. And I'd learned that in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So, in the midst of experience, uh, experiencing some degree of uh, clinging and attachment, I decided to give my favorite bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. Though I did feel kind of like a one-handed giver during my consideration of doing this and then finally deciding to give it. 
when the time actually came to give her the gift, it was then by then with both hands and with an open heart. It was quite a joy at that point to do it, though in the process of getting there, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally, all the conditions come together. But just one week before the retreat begins, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend of hers who was dying of cancer had asked her if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have quite an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved teacher off the dashboard of his car and he hands it to me, gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply relaxes and opens. And it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. And the child is then led out of the circle to share the food and the drink with the hungry and the thirsty, and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of summers ago now, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area here in New Mexico. And hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing and food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving that the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time yourself and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as 
the retreat unfolds. Just for a moment now, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks and nuns is moving slowly, gracefully, down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' and nuns' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child standing with your mother or father or older sister or older brother and seeing this ritual, this offering, each morning, taking in the power of the generous heart, so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness that's quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They just simply become a natural part of your life. And from the Buddha, Buddha, from the Itivuttaka. If beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess upset the obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking with his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder, we could say. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't so easily available in this country, which is at least in part a training, the cultivation of renunciation gratitude, and the understanding of the interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. Nor do we regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, 
and generous heart. And, to the contrary, here in this retreat, how special and how wonderful in this regard with so, so many meals generously offered as Donna all through this retreat. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, to thirst for, to acquire, to accumulate, and then to fixate and to cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas and opinions and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then, in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning. I think that it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves. The truth of things, all things, underneath and beyond all of this training, beyond this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. In a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye from her book called Different Ways to Pray, and she wrote this when she was in Columbia in 1978. The title of the poem is Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything, feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desperate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend.
there isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. And I think that as a culture, there's a deep, quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and to know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may be gone tomorrow and maybe seemingly belong to someone else next week. And maybe even seeing this in this retreat or maybe in some other retreat that you've sat, my spot in the meditation hall, my seat in the dining room, my walking path. What in this world really, truly belongs to us? What can we really, really possess? Is there anything, anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to really touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity, and our special or particular talents. An inner wealth of generosity is a very powerful medicine. It's an antidote antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioning, through the training of accumulating and then fixing, fixing on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. When the Chilean writer Isabel Allende's 28-year-old daughter Uh, Paula fell ill and was in a coma for a year. Isabel took care of her until she died um, in December of 1992. And here's some words from Isabel. The pain of losing my child was a cleansing experience. I had to throw overboard all excess baggage and keep only what is essential. Because of Paula, I don't cling to anything anymore. Now I like to give much more than to receive. I'm happier when I love than when I'm loved. I adore my husband, my son, my grandchildren, my mother, my dog, 
And frankly, I don't know if they even like me. But who cares? Loving them is my joy. Give, give, give. What is the point of having experience, knowledge, or talent if I don't give it away? Of having stories if I don't tell them to others? Of having wealth if I don't share it? I don't intend to be cremated with any of it. It is in the giving that I connect with others, with the world, and with the divine. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response in the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can be forever given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. So from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the the greatest act of giving is giving itself. The greatest gift, he said, is the act of giving itself. And there's a a short sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya that talks about this in a particular way. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him. And after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gautama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, a hundred and twenty years old. And we have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gautama, instruct us, Master Gautama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responds, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, a hundred and twenty years old. And you have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. The world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. And the Buddha goes on, When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged. Traditionally, in the Buddhist teachings, <clears throat> Buddhist teachings, there are three kinds of giving that are spoken of. There's what we could call beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, <laughs> still holding on to what we, what we give. It's still mine. How I actually first began towards giving my <clears throat> young Chinese friend my bracelet. <clears throat> 
in this kind of giving we we might give the least of what we have and and afterwards you may even wonder whether we should have given it all the second kind of giving can be called friendly giving <clears throat> and we give open handedly with both hands we share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to to do so it's a clear giving and then there's what's called queenly or kingly giving and this is where we give the best of what we have even if none remains for ourselves we give instinctively we give graciously we know ourselves to only be the temporary caretakers of whatever's been provided we know ourselves as owning nothing and in this there's no giving there's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life this is really the true heart of generosity a century buddhist monk shanti davis said this others are my main concern when i notice something of mine i steal it and give it to others there's nothing to be held on to in this knowing of the per- perfectly natural empty flow of life in understanding the way of things the heart of generosity quite naturally blooms <clears throat> and from Desmond Tutu from South Africa Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English we call it ubuntu boto it means the essence of being human you know when it's there and when it's absent it speaks about humanness gentleness hospitality putting yourself out on the behalf of others and being vulnerable it embraces compassion and toughness it, re- it recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together and as i'm sure you all know we don't always live with the purity and the completeness of queenly and kingly generosity this is at least in part one of the reasons why we practice and something that i think is important uh, to remember throughout our practice is to be remember to be really honest with ourselves to honor and to respect our capacity of heart at any given point along the way and not pretend anything to ourselves or to others by imitating or by maybe by acting out of some idealized image we might have of a generous compassionate loving person it's important to recognize honor and respect our limits along the way and to come from a genuine place of heart i 
had a strong lesson in this about 30 or so years ago. My mother had a very uh, severe leg injury. She had fallen on some cement steps, which became deeply infected. Uh, And there was a potential to have her hospitalized. We were told by the doctor that cleaning the wound on a daily basis, as I remember, I think it was even twice a day, was needed. And one of us, either my brother or I or my sister-in-law, had to volunteer to do this. Well, there was a bit of silence. No one volunteered. And so I did it. I stepped up. I said, okay, I'll do it. There was certainly some compassionate generosity in that volunteering because it needed to be done. And it was my mother. But as the process went on, there was quite a bit of, a bit of aversion that came up and some anger. Aversion and anger at her for letting it get to this point. She never did take care of it or go to the doctor after she fell. And at times it was, also there was some aversion to the smell of the wound. I found it very unpleasant and sometimes some strong aversion would come up. And her pain was very difficult for me to be with. She was in in a lot of pain. So in some moments it was hard to be with. It was hard for me to open to her suffering all the time, fully. And then I thought at one point, she's the mom, I'm the child. She's supposed to be taking care of me. But she was enormously gratitude and grateful for what I was doing. And she expressed it over and over again, which was amazing. And my gratitude then grew in in relationship to my practice. I was practicing at that point, and I, I started really recognizing all of the mind states that were coming and going through this whole process of taking care of her. And I began to feel deeply, deeply grateful for my practice because it changed, it changed the aversion that was coming up and the fear that was coming up. And a great bond was created between my mom and I and old roles of her being the mother and me being the child were bridged and let go of. And it was really a very um, deep lesson for me, deep practice lesson for me. Sometimes we might think we're acting out of generosity and unconditional kindness and compassion when in fact we may be acting out of maybe fear of loss or maybe some fear of disapproval or maybe some fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or in relationship to a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and perpetuates delusion. It strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which then in turn continues suffering in ourself and maybe also in the other person in the equation as well. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency, 
rather than cultivating the truth of a very high, healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet have the complete feeling of a simple okayness about being here. Meaning an okayness about being alive in this world just simply because here you are, alive in this world. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, a sense of an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness, this needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving, sharing, and caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feelings of lack, there can be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourselves away. We may lose ourselves in an unhealthy way in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving or unskillful support of others. And when this happens, we actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted. We feel weaker, which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness of an ign- accompanied by the ignorance of the real needs of others along with the lack of awareness and ignorance of our own needs. It's really important to understand, respect, and to honor our, in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a true and deep generosity develops and matures gradually. And in relationship to this, on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote this. He said, To allow yourself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a countermeasure, Ralph Waldo Emerson said to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition to know even one life has breathed easier 
because you have lived. This is to be successful. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, to intuitively feel and know our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature in the rel- on the relative level of life, and includes our intuitive sensing of interconnectedness, and our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and the compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, one or all of these inclinations are some of the very deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. And looking at the practice of generosity from another perspective, there's a, uh, there's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about, a very, very basic practice that people who are extremely stingy, miserly people uh, are told to do sometimes. People who sometimes identify themselves as fiercely independent. And this sort of person actually often has some trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive help, even when it's graciously offered. Receiving help and gifts and praise and sometimes even love can be very difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, with joy, with appreciation and kindness even if they're physically sick or maybe distressed emotionally. So, the practice is to take something very, very ordinary, something that one might not think of as being particularly valuable, like maybe a potato or a turnip. You hold it in one hand. Open your other hand, if you can. If you're so stingy, it might be hard to open your other hand. But open your other hand. And then you pass the turnip or the potato from one hand to the other, back and forth, back and forth, until it gets easy and you don't feel foolish. And following that, there are the higher practices. These are really practices that are taught. If one is motivated and one is inclined to continue the practice of generosity and relinquishment, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving then symbolically develops into letting go of or relinquishing, offering everything, all of the accumulations, 
the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas and beliefs. And one is even encouraged in this practice to relinquish the secret holdings, whatever those might be for any particular person. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of very precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dharma, and to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point I did this practice, but instead of precious jewels, the offering was rice, a big mound of rice, which actually felt quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing here in our practice, without the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, it's just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and open heart, with a clear, concentrated, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, appreciation, humility, and equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through the body, any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of the breath from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy, and that this is intimately connected to the development of deep generosity of the heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi's answer was this. He said, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim And the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help and to free others. And we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. So closing the talk this evening with just one more story. 
oh, about 35 years ago or so now, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would come to the area of Michigan where I lived to teach us. And one year I invited him to come and to stay in my house, a small, very old five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just one of my sons, one of my three sons and I were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came, and an old, well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. He was a, quite a big man. He was at least six foot three and very big boned. And he looked even bigger with his uh, cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat on. <clears throat> and then it was kind of like one of those cars in the, um, in, the, in the circus that pulls up into the center ring and the doors open and people just keep pouring out of the car. And one is amazed and wondering how many, how so many people can fit into one little car like that. So as we watched, my son and I watched, seven people emerged from this very little car, little old car, Wallace's helpers and uh, members of his family. And it turned out there were 11 people uh, living in our house during this 10-day period. And the thought came, well, how will we all live and sleep in this tiny house? Well, the space seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge that was down the road at the ecology center until about 12.30 a.m. And then it was time for a big dinner because no meals were to be taken through the afternoon and the evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and habits how I use the various spaces of my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, food preferences and other preferences. Wallace and one of the members of his family smoked cigarettes continuously in my no-smoking house. And as I mentioned earlier, people slept all over the house, all over the place. The day would begin in the late morning, with, uh, and with the late-night sweat lodge ceremonies, um, 1 a.m. was dinner time. And every afternoon, the house was filled with 15 to 20 people who were coming by as, to listen as Wallace shared his teachings in his very casual, conversational way. And somehow, there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats, and there were bowls of food at the door, or some bowls of food left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would cook up, be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night of this 10 days, Wallace and friends, uh, his friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a, gra- uh, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I, just for my son and I. 
And as we all sat together in a circle, each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our ten days together. And then they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for us sharing our space and our time and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke and he said, If one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance, he said. When everyone left the next day, in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside and we watched them all getting back into the old car. It was kind of like a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us walked back into the house and stood there in amazement. The seeming great expanse of our home, our little tiny home, uh, holding all of the people, holding all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk. And yet somehow, we internally both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. Let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.